Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend, especially those of you in the United States or American citizens overseas who just finished your extra long Thanksgiving weekend. Probably a little tough to get back to work this week, but the home stretch is here. I thought it was time for a little Christmas music as we open up the podcast. Tis the season, right? Um, I'm back on the road this week, starting my week in Texas and then finishing up in Arizona before heading to Arkansas next week. So back to the busyness of life on the road. As we approach the holidays in December, I wanted to let you know that the last podcast for 2021 will be out on December 13th. And then the podcast will be taking a three-week break before returning on January 10th. So including today, there are three episodes left. As always, thanks for listening in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And a big thank you to longtime listeners. Um, I appreciate all of you, and I just appreciate you tuning in each week. Today, my guest is Hedrick Nichols. Hedrick is an educator and the host of the Small Bites podcast. We set our sights in this conversation on racial equity and what it means to be a culturally responsive educator. I think you're going to love what Hedrick has to say. I just love her perspective on all of the topics that we covered. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on six myths of summative assessment and how to counter these false narratives that seem to keep circulating for what sometimes appear to be performative reasons. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Hedrick Nichols is coming up. But first, I want you to at me, and I'll tell you why a little bit later. Because I want to open this week with a hypothetical that I think about from time to time. And that is, I wonder what my professional life would have been like had I not gone into education. Now, I'm not bringing this up because I'm unhappy with my career or I'm ready to move on or anything like that. I love everything about my professional life. It really is just a little daydreaming I do from time to time, and I think it provides me with a little mental break from the work and allows me to live in a state of wonderment for a while. Now, if you were to have asked me this question when I began teaching back in the early 1990s, I probably would have had two answers for you. The first would have been broadcasting, which is maybe why I've been drawn into podcasting. <laughs> maybe I'm fulfilling some unmet need from the past. As many of you know, my life when I was young was consumed with sports. And so when I was in college and kind of facing the choice about what to choose and emphasize and what to major in, both choices had to do with sports. Education, so I could get into coaching, or communication, so I could get into broadcasting. And as I've said before many times, I did not choose education because of a passion for teaching. I got into education because I wanted to coach, and I thought becoming a teacher would be a great way to do that. Now, once I was inside the profession, I learned to love the profession, thrive within the profession, and that passion became sort of part of, of my professional life. But that passion wasn't there from the start. Now, the other choice back in the early 1990s might have been law. And, and maybe for the purpose of sports law, you know, becoming an agent or something like that, or maybe just an attorney in some field. I'm not really sure because I never really gave that a lot of thought. And I'm sure some of that was influenced heavily by the onslaught of John Grisham novels that came out in the 1990s that it seemed we were all obsessed with. I mean, A Time to Kill is still one of my favorite novels of all time. But if you were to ask me today, and this has been true for a while, 
what career I'd choose if not education, it would be a chef. I love to cook. I would actually fancy myself to be a bit of a foodie, but not in this snobby, obnoxious way. Listen, I can drive through with the best of them. I can drive through a Popeye's spicy chicken sandwich. Absolutely. And yes, I'm team Popeye's. Chick-fil-A is fantastic. Absolutely. But for me, the choice is clear. It's Popeye's hands down. (laughs) I always tell people, look, when it comes to food, I have a high ceiling, but I also have a low floor. I love great food. And who doesn't, right? But I can also be quite content with takeout. I'm not a food snob, but I love to cook. And I didn't always love to cook, so I have to credit my mom for instilling this passion for cooking in me. My mom was a phenomenal cook. Her bedtime reading was cookbooks. You know, some people read novels, they read magazines, or of course nowadays they surf the web or watch TikTok. My mom read cookbooks, and not just the recipes, but also the stories that introduced the recipes. Everything she made was just so good, even if it was the first time she ever made it. Sometimes she would even make adaptations before ever having cooked it in the first place. Everything we ate was just always so tasty. Now, listen, let me be clear. We were through and through a working class family, so we weren't necessarily fine dining, and we're not talking about exceptional ingredients, you know, except for maybe on special occasions like Christmas or Easter or something like that. So it was just about sort of regular ingredients, regular food, if you will, whatever that means, but it was just so good. Now, later in their lives, when my dad's optical business took off in the early 1990s, things definitely took an upswing. So going over to my parents' house for dinner on Sundays was starting to become restaurant quality in the early 1990s. Now, my dad passed away in 1997. So my mom, of course, was alone. And we, of course, would continue to go visit her. And I remember one time going to her house and the TV was on in the kitchen. It was on the Food Network. And I'd never seen it before, but there was this chef and he kept yelling, bam, every time he seasoned his food. And of course, most of you, many of you, some of you might know that was Emeril Lagasse and the show was Emeril Live. And that was the show, you know, like for a lot of people back then, so I don't count myself as unique with this. That was the show that started my interest in the Food Network. And in fact, many credit that show with saving the Food Network back in the day. So back then... The Food Network was all about learning. You'd watch a show and they would teach you how to make things, right? And that's when I was introduced to the likes of Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson and Gordon Ramsay and Giada De Laurentiis and Bobby Flay and so many more great chefs. Today, the Food Network seems to be more about competitions, but back then it was all about watching and hearing chefs cook the recipes from their latest cookbooks. You'd get the book and then you'd have some idea how to make the recipes and you kind of learn from there. So flash forward a few years later, and my mom's health had deteriorated due to renal failure and a few other issues, so she really didn't have the strength or the energy to do things. So when she came to visit, or we visited her, we would all watch the Food Network because it was something that we had in common. So we would watch the show, say, on a Saturday afternoon, and then typically somewhere along the way in the afternoon, my mom would chime in and say, hey, let's cook that tonight. So off we'd go to the grocery store to get the ingredients and my mom would walk us through how to cook it. She didn't really have the strength to do it or the the energy to stand in the kitchen for that long. So my wife and I would cook while she directed us and we would learn how to make things. And doing that repeatedly led me to acquiring an appreciation for cooking. 
Like I said, I have a high ceiling in that I love fine dining. And again, nothing unique in that. Who doesn't? But at the same time, I have a low floor because sometimes the least expensive meals are some of the most delicious. Good food is good food. Anyway, that's where my passion for cooking came from. So we started to learn to make many of my mom's recipes, things that reminded me of my childhood. She has this killer red cabbage recipe. And the key to it, of course, is equal parts sweet and sour. So as much vinegar as you add, add the sugar and make sure you cook it longer than you think because the red cabbage needs to be a deep red color. Cloves, diced Granny Smith apples, salt, pepper, you're good to go. Her potato salad recipe. Now, speaking of diced Granny Smith apples, if you're not adding diced Granny Smith apples into your potato salad, fix your life. <laughs> okay? And 50-50 burgers. What do I mean by that? Homemade burgers with a 50-50 ratio. Ground beef to ground pork. 50% ground beef, 50% ground pork. You're welcome. And I started to kind of branch out of, of even what she would regularly make. So I started to make homemade pasta. I'd make different versions of risotto. And then I started expanding into a number of different cuisines and new recipes. Uh, this chocolate raspberry pavlova, this incredible dessert, that's a Nigella Lawson recipe. And it's the most delicious dessert ever. Just recently, I made shrimp and grits for the first time. Now, the first time I ever had shrimp and grits, I was in South Carolina about five years ago, and I'd never had it before. So I thought, well, look, I'm in the South. I might as well order something that's Southern and, and see what it tastes like. You know, shrimp, chorizo sausage, and grits. And honestly, it was everything I could do to stop myself from licking my plate clean. It was one of the most delicious meals I'd ever had. I've ordered it many times ever since, but I'd never made it. And actually, I have to say my first attempt turned out really good. Uh, but, and, and this is the best part, I already know what I do differently as far as tweaks to the technique and, and the plating. So, and by the way, if, if you've made this many times, if you've made shrimp and grits, go ahead and at me with uh, your tips on uh, things you do to make it delicious. Absolutely loved it. So as you can tell, food excites me. And, and not just from a consumption perspective, okay? Not just about eating it. On the front that I... You know, on that, on that idea, I, I, I wish I wasn't as excited, but on, on the idea of, of just the joy that comes from food, that's, that's what excites me about food. And again, to be clear, I'm not saying I'm a great cook or anything like that. Just because I like it doesn't mean I'm really good at it. I mean, I think I've learned to become pretty good at it, but, you know, I, I'm not always great at everything. But it's, to, for me, it's about the learning, right? In fact, I think the fact that I'm not that good at it is one of the reasons I really like it. It's an authentic learning experience for me in something that is completely outside my comfort zone. I mean, one of the reasons I love cooking so much is I love seeing the look of satisfaction on other people's faces when you serve them something delicious. And I don't mean that from the perspective of ego. It's not about, hey, look how amazing I am. It really doesn't come from that. It, 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 it doesn't come from the idea that they think about how great I am. It really is about creating a great experience for them. That's why I think I would have made a great barista, which I never did. But, you know, again, you make that specialty coffee and you watch people be so excited, uh, you know, that you made their day. That to me was something that um, just really, really gets me excited. So that's, that's my, if not education story. So I'm thinking maybe 
uh, and this is where I want you to at me. I'm thinking maybe we could have a little fun with this. So if you're on Twitter or Instagram, I'm going to ask you to use the hashtag if not ed. Okay, so if not education, if not ed. And make sure it's the hashtag because there is someone out there who has the handle at if not ed. So make sure you use the hashtag because we don't want to blow up his Twitter. Or maybe we do. No, 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 we don't. We don't want to blow up his Twitter, so let's not let's not go down that road. Okay, so here's the deal. Use, let's have a little fun with this as we sort of move into the end of November here and into December. Let's have a little fun with this. Use the hashtag if not ed on Twitter or Instagram and make sure you tag the podcast. So tag on Twitter at Tom Shimmer Pod or on Instagram at Tom Shimmer Podcast. Uh, and, and tell me what your if not ed career would have been. And if possible, you know, post a picture of either you doing that or a pic that represents that career. Because obviously, if you said something like, hey, Tom, if not education, I would have become a surgeon. You can't just burst into an operating room and snap a selfie uh, and quickly run out and say, well, I got to do a social media post. Um, so just any pic that captures what your if not ed career would have been or what it would be if you had to pivot today. So again, this is not meant to be anything serious or, or meant to be engineering any digs against an education career. Not at all. This is not about, uh, you know, anti-education or, you know, these, these deep, serious, I wish I would have kinds of conversations. This is simply a moment to daydream, a moment to wonder, a moment to think about what your professional life would have been like, if not Ed. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Hedrick Nichols. Hedrick is an author, an educator, a consultant, helping educators and districts amplify the voices of all students. Her YouTube series and podcast, Small Bites, further helps campuses amplify student voices by focusing on equity in education and helps educators create more culturally responsive classrooms and campuses. Hedrick's upcoming book entitled Finding Your Blind Spots, and we are definitely going to talk about that book today, provides educators with guiding principles to help them become more culturally responsible. So Hedrick, really excited to have you here. Welcome to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. I have to say I'm a, a loyal listener of uh, Small Bites. Uh, I can't wait to read your book. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have you here. So let's let's get right into it because I know we're going to hit some very substantive topics today. And I really, I honestly can't wait to get your perspective. And I want to begin with both a simple and a complex question. Um, the question is, is it possible or are we poised to become hyper-focused on race? You know, the idea that we will get to the point where we lose perspective slightly and and potentially see race everywhere where maybe even it's not. Is it, Are we on the verge of that or help me understand that that's not necessarily a perspective that that you share? You know what? I, I love that you asked that question because I do have it's a conversation I have with some of my white friends and. To, to provide a little context for our listeners, let me ask you a couple of questions. All right. Have you ever gone shopping with your mom and seen a sign that said, if you can read, well, you're not that. So if you can read white boy run, if you can't read run anyhow. I have never seen that. Okay. Have you ever embraced your crying 17 year old 
because after church, he got stopped on a long stretch of road. They said it was a random stop. They took everything out of the car. They screamed at him, um, stop, get your hands off the steering wheel. I don't want you driving off. And we've you know, we've talked about how to behave in a traffic stop. They searched everything. They screamed at him. I know you're on drugs. Why are you shaking if you're if nothing's wrong? Have you have you ever had that happen to anyone in your circle? I I can easily say that has never happened to me or anyone in my circle. Has anyone ever asked to touch your hair at work? No. <laughs> No. Um, have you ever, uh, do you have kids, by the way? I don't even know if you have kids. I do. I do. Okay. I have two. Has one of your kids ever come back and said, Mom, the guy down the street asked me what I was doing over here and told me to go skate in my own neighborhood because we live in a neighborhood that is largely white? No, that has not happened, no. Okay. So when people ask me, are we hyper-focused on race? I want to just say, I wish I could not focus it. I wish it was a luxury that I had to not focus on race. You've heard small bites almost every time. It's an anecdote. Something happens. And it, right. it seems like we just can't get a week. We can't get, a, we just can't get a break. There's always something that happens. And my son's father is uh, German. So theoretically he's biracial, but I've always raised him as a black male because I knew what he'd be confronted with. And mm -hmm. as long as he was little and he had the little cute little curls and oh my gosh, Hedrick, he's just beautiful. It was fine. But once he got taller than me and grew grew facial hair, and now he wears a kind of a wild Eric Bonet kind of a music musician, he's a bassist, kind of wild, <laughs> cool Afro. All yeah. of a sudden, now he's perceived as a threat. Right. And he didn't he didn't change. He's still the sweet little boy he always was with a deeper voice and some more manly yeah. swag. But the world perceives him differently. And so unfortunately for people who look like me, we don't have the luxury of not focusing on race because either we are letting it change who we are and letting it break us, or we are advocating for change so that people will understand that my experience may not be your experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you bring up such a, a good point there with this idea of uh, the choice, because obviously, and, and I want to be clear that I do not subscribe to this this position, but I did want to bring it up because I hear this in society that there is a counter narrative about, you know, being hyper-focused on race and why is everything about race? And yet, you know, I, as a white male, have the choice to turn off sort of the, the race idea, turn off the idea that I can turn off thinking about race, I can get exhausted by race. And then for others, of course, like yourself, it, it, you just can't, you can't get away from those experiences and you wish that you could get away from those experiences. So let me ask you this, what, what do you think it would take? Um, I know this is a massive question, but what could we, what is it going to take for us to get to a place where we can settle into what the ideal may have always been, which is to, and I know that this term itself is, is not really a, a, a term that we, we focus on today, but this idea of being colorblind, what do you think where, where we could get truly to a place that, that we have that level of, of, of blindness so that we truly do, what, what, is, what are some of the steps forward that we need to take to get there? <sighs> One thing I think that teachers should be able to teach truth, <laughs> right. that provocative statement, but yeah. I've got to put that out there because, you know, we, we used to talk about, when I was a little girl, we talked about citizenship. We talked about yeah. what it looked like. And honestly, 
even though we don't explicitly talk about it a lot anymore, especially after the middle years, fourth grade and up, we still have this code of conduct, these handbooks that right. talk about what citizenship is and what's expected and what's not. And now we're saying we don't want to have those conversations. You know, right. what citizenship looks like is always a bit, you know, you might, you, you feel like it one way. You know, my, I always say my neighbor has dinner at eight. Her kids are all grown up and they both work out, work from home. And they usually have dinner about eight. I know this because they're out, you know, doing gardening <laughs> about six. Right. I right. have a kid at nine o'clock. He's getting ready to go to bed. So I, we have dinner at six. Six has always been our dinner time. Neither of those is wrong. They're just various perspectives. So mm -hmm. until we begin to see not perspectives that allow us to be blind to differences, but know that everybody's story is different. Everybody's story right. is valuable. And everybody's story is, for, for, for my take, interesting. I think, mm -hmm. you know, culture is interesting as heck. I love learning things. And until we can embrace, embrace that the norm is that there's no norm, then mm -hmm. we won't get to that place. We are always looking to make a a monolith like like white. That is yeah. a construct of a monolith. But really, there is there were the British that came, the Vikings came, the everybody who came in after the British was considered an immigrant, even though even though right. the, British, the British too were immigrants, right. you know. But they were yeah. Germanic people. There were Polish. There was the there were the Italians. There were the Spanish. There were all of these different cultures, mm -hmm. and that became as we grew as a nation that became one monolithic white. And so yeah. until we deconstruct that as a norm and realize there's really no norm, then we'll always be kind of stuck. We get we get uncomfortable very quickly with with conversations, and I think one of the reasons this perspective of uh, you know this idea of being hyper focused on race is that you know people become a little uncomfortable, and they want to sweep it under the rug and say you know we're past that we've moved on. But at the same time, we haven't had the conversation yet. We haven't really had the honest conversation yet to be able to say okay now it now we can move past it. It's interesting because you know I've read recently um Columbia professor uh linguistics professor and New York Times opinion writer John McWhorter um he's he's been an outspoken critic of some of the anti-racism work that has emerged over the last couple of years and in particular he's he's really taken aim at Ibram Kendi and and Robin DiAngelo for spearheading what he calls this this new kind of zealous religion. And I want to read you a couple of excerpts uh, from a recent interview with NPR that he had. And I want to get your reaction to these quotes, because these quotes really caught my attention. And, and I want I want you to put them in perspective for me and, and tell me how you would respond to them. So in reference to the idea that anti-racism is a religion, he said this, quote, the way we talk about right, white privilege is eerily consonant with the way one talks about original sin. You have it from the beginning, it's a stain that you'll never get rid of. You're supposed to always think about it. It's there regardless of the condition of your life, and you're going to die with it. So white privilege becomes the original sin that you're supposed to live in a kind of atonement for, end quote. So that's the first quote that caught my attention. And then in reference to the criticisms that he's received, because the people are firing back at him and saying, listen, do you not understand that systemic racism exists? To that criticism, he has said, quote, I know that those inequalities exist. I think those inequalities must be battled. He said, the issue is what do you do to battle them? And he says, telling people not to be racist or thinking of these inequities as some abstract version of bigotry doesn't help people who actually need the help. So if, 
end, end quote. So if John McWhorter were with us uh, today, um, how would you respond to his criticism of anti-racism and just his overall sentiment with, with where the anti-racist movement is today? Um, I think I would say to him what I kind of like to say to everybody, why are we judging the motivations of others? You know, maybe yeah. Kendi and um, and uh, D'Angelo, maybe they think of it like a religion and maybe they don't. Has he spoken to them? Has he talked about talked to them about their journey and talked to them about how they've built their work on, on what foundation they've built their work? You know, I, I if there's one thing that kind of gets under my skin, it's both sides spending more time talking about the way the other packages the messaging right. than confronting the problem. So that last little part that he said, that's where we need to get to. Can you, can you read that for me one more time? Yeah. He said that, you know, I say that telling people not to be racist or thinking of those inequities as some abstract version of bigotry doesn't help the people who actually need help. We fo that's the part we focus on. You are anti-racist. You are racist. You are a liberal. You're a Democrat. You're a Republican. You're white right wing. You're left wing. You're left wing. You're black. You're white. Yeah. We are so focused on the labels mm -hmm. that we cannot get to actually what what will help. You know, the bottom for yeah. me, there's one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Right. When our forefathers, if they did one thing right, they did that. They they wrote it into, they wove it into our fabric that we are to be one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Right. Now, there are not a lot of countries that have that ideal, really, that, that, that is grounded in a sense of justice and liberty. But that's what we have. That is the goal. That is the that is the as yet unattained goal. And if we don't just get in board with that, one nation, first of all, not right wing, not left wing, not Democrat, not Republican. I mean, it's like, dudes, this is not the Cowboys and the Steelers. You know, it's not about who's got the most Super Bowl rings and your team and my team. This is about, you know, this is one nation. And so that's important. If we would stop focusing on how you're packaging the message and focus, focus on what the disparaging outcomes are for the people who this actually happens to, who, who, who suffer from these outcomes, who experience these outcomes, then we can get to what's important. And I am just, I'm so over the uncivilized, inhumane, mad, angry, judgmental arguing about who says what and how they say it. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it is really, um, you know, it makes me think of the, the old adage that says, you know, when you're in a debate, the first one that makes it personal knows they're losing the argument. Uh -huh. And if you, if you take that to the conversations that are currently happening now, to me, it's the first one who argues method knows they're losing the argument of ideas. I think of Colin Kaepernick. And it, it wasn't that, you know, the critique wasn't that he was protesting. It was just we didn't like the way he was protesting. So we've got to say that we, you know, he, he took and we didn't like that he was seated. So he was advised to take a knee. We didn't like that he took a knee. We didn't like that he was passive. We didn't like that. we. So we constantly critique the method. And it makes me feel like when you start to critique the method and you don't like the, the way that they're going about it, 
then that's a distraction. And clearly you're not debating the idea anymore, debating the outcome you're focused on. Do you think there's some truth to that? Do you think that the argument of method is really, uh, you know, a, a way that they, that say the one side of the argument realizes that they're not on solid ground in terms of the debate or the idea? Not only is it true, the sad state of affairs is that both sides spend way too much time arguing method, which right. makes me afraid for where we are as a country. We've all we're we're already no longer a full democracy, according to all of the different the UN and those kind of places. Mm -hmm. And that's that's scary. That's really hard to hear because you know we pride ourselves on being the Americans are the champions of a democracy in the world. And yet we spend so much time arguing method that we as a country are on the losing side. Yeah. You know, that's so I would like to see, um, you know, McWhorter's not alone. There is an archbishop in um, in, Lu in Los Angeles who has mm -hmm. said the same thing, that this wokeism is some new secular religion. And mm -hmm. when he says it, I can give McWhorter a, a, a bit of a pass. I don't I just don't don't feel the need to judge him. But being a woman of faith raised in a generation, fourth of five generations of church musicians, I take issue with an archbishop, uh, an arch, archbishop saying that this is a new religion because one of the things that I do in my work is I say that, you know, we look at, look inside, look inside, look inward. And if the church is saying that someone else is a religion, that must, I would look at myself and say, oh, there must be a need that I'm not meeting instead of pointing the finger, looking at their methods and not like, are you kidding me? So I have a real hard time. If there's something that makes me get in my feelings, it's that we can have civilized disagreements. if nothing more. Right. And I think we need to get to a point where we listen better. You know what? I, I always say, it's easy for me to say, I know what it's like to be black, but you know, like I, I live in Texas and I have some white people that I work with and that I, I'm friends with. They don't know what it's like to be black. They don't know the kinds of things that I, they don't know that, oh, I love it when you do a Negro spiritual. <laughs> She's 79 years old. She has no idea. I know that that woman loves me. I know that she means me no harm. Am I going to, or am I going to say something about, oh my God, that's a racist statement. Well, no. If it comes up, I might get to say, well, you know, we don't say Negro anymore. You know, it's, right. I might, I might not. It's just that we don't have to spend so much time focused focused in on what and the package. Let's get to the liberty and justice for all piece. They didn't okay. do it well. I mean, you can't say liberty and justice for all and then, you know, uh, break treaties with Native Americans and, you know, the whole human trafficking piece enslaving Africans. But they had the ideal. So let's like kind of focus on that because we, we've got to be able to compromise. We've got to be able to talk to one another and, right. you know, if wokeism as a as a religion, as a passionate, if, if you don't like to hear about anti-racism, then fine. Go listen to someone else who talks about it in terms that you can. That's the wonderful thing about the Internet. We don't have to listen to anything we don't want to. You've got 144 channels of cable and you've got the world wide web. So find right, something right. else that will, exactly. that, will, that will make you make someone's life better. Because at the end right. of the day, I think that especially with educators, that's really why we go into this job. Two things come to mind. Uh, listeners, you'll recall my interview with Muhammad Khalifa, who is the author of Culturally Responsive School Leadership uh, last April. And he talked about how the folks 
that are leading the anti-racist movement don't have time to sit down and plan and get it all perfect as it's unfolding in real time. And that just, as you were answering there, Hedrick, it, it reminds me that, you know, as things unfold in real time, you know, there may be things that people do that are a little bit overzealous. There may be things that are a little aggressive, maybe too intense, but we have to understand that this is almost happening as I said, in real time as we unfold. The other thing that c came to mind as you were responding there uh, was, was last week, my guest was Brian Butler, and we talked all about the limitations and the downsides and the damage that can be caused by labeling students. And yet it seems that adults in society today do nothing but define themselves by the labels that represent who they are or what they think. And it's kind of ironic that we all recognize the, the way that labels can limit our students and children, and yet as adults, we seem to clearly define ourselves by what political party we belong to or vote for or what movement we agree with or don't agree with. And we've reduced, whether it's CRT or whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put out there, we seem to have to have these binary choices behind them and that defines who we are. So it is definitely an, uh, an interesting topic. I want to come now, to, Hedrick, to, to the book. You are, of course, the author of the upcoming book, as I mentioned earlier, Finding Your Blind Spots, Eight Guiding Principles for Overcoming Implicit Bias in Teaching. And, and listeners, just so you know, you can pre-order that book now. It's released on December 3rd. So uh, make sure you you head over. And I'll have a link for that in the show notes uh, for everyone. So, okay. So we recognize that we we all have implicit bias to some degree, for sure. So maybe as a way of previewing the book and giving listeners and myself a, an idea of some of the specifics that you write about, how do we find those blind spots and what should educators specifically do about those blind spots in, let's say, in the capacity as a teacher or an administrator? How do we find them? And then what do we do about them? Oh, my God, that's my favorite question, because, you know, if you say the word bias, implicit bias, it appears on all of these conservative buzzword lists that we shouldn't talk about it in classroom. But cognitive bias is the way that our brains function to sort things into categories. I have this really neat um, neat example in the book where I say, okay, four-legged creature, meow, meow, cat, walking on a trail with my kids. We're way up in, you know, um, West Texas and we have, we have brown bears, four-legged creature, lots of fur standing on two legs with two little cubs, bear, Whole nother thing. I don't have to go, hey, little, little, little. Oh, what a cute little four. I recognize that it's a bear. Four-legged creature. There are just a million ways that I can sort information. And being able to sort information allows me not to think, wait, cat, hold on. The, the, the four-legged creature is tiny, has a long tail, or the four-legged creature is way bigger than me. I don't have to think of all those things. So that's where cognitive biases come from. We are able to sort information quickly and efficiently. Now, implicit biases when it goes into overdrive. For example, I have a friend, um, we had dinner on my pair, on my patio a couple of months ago, and she, we were talking about these kinds of things and, and racism. And she said, you know, maybe we could do a book study because I know some of my white friends don't have any idea that these things exist. And she's, she's, she's white. And she was saying, you know, the, the truth be told, if I see a black man on the street and I'm walking alone, I would pull my purse closer and I'd walk a little faster. And it's funny because my my son was there and we were happy, but it was good because we were having a conversation. And he knows this is how I'm perceived, this perceived threat. And in talking about that, I got to say, you know, that's what implicit bias is. It's 
those pictures that we see, if we see the, if you follow the looting hashtag right now, everybody is in a hoodie and, you know, with the hood pulled up, you know, God's Christopher, don't go to the house with a hoodie over your head. Those are those biases that we all have. And that's kind of when it goes into overdrive. We automatically assume that a person, if, if there's a man in a suit in the elevator, we are much, especially if it's an office building, we're much less likely to feel threatened. He looks like he belongs. And so we automatically sort people into an us and a them. And so the big thing that I do in the book is I talk about the us's and the them's. And we, we sort them into our family. You know, our, my brother was never like us. He just he, he was always different. We do that. You know, our first us is our mama. And then it's our mom and our, our, our the adults that, that care that care for us. And then after that, we extend to the people who they trust. So those biases are simply our natural way to say this is us and this is them. But how and where we draw that line can can disenfranchise certain students. And it's not a black and white thing. It's an everything thing. And that's one of the things I also bring up in Finding Your Blind Spots. Um, there's often a time, for example, if you were the kid who always, you were the nerdy science fair winner who got necked by the, I don't, do you know what necking, necking is? I'm a middle school teacher. Necking <laughs> is when somebody runs down the hall and slaps you hard on the back of the neck. No, I've never heard of that. I never heard that term. I, I've seen that action, but I've never heard the term before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> necking, necking used to mean something else in the right. 1950s and 60s. Oh God, that's right. That is right. Necking Showing is. my age here, I suppose. Uh, no, from, yeah. so, you know, I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Right, so no, right. necking now is uh, he necked me. So that's a okay. slap right. on the back of the neck. Okay, slap so we're clear about that one. <laughs> that's good. At any rate, if you are, if you were that kid, and every day in your class, the two or three big man on campus types, the jocks, the, you know, capital, they come in, you will probably, unless you have really looked inward to let all that go, you will probably have a harder time relating to those kids and an easier time relating to the science, science fair nerd who they bully. <laughs> Right. So that is a normal thing. And we really have to, as educators, be aware of what our triggers are. And when we, there's a whole lot of inside work before at the end of the chapters, you get, you get some outside work to do. But a lot of it is just recognizing what you think about things. You know, when, when you hear LGBTQ, what do you think? Do you go, oh my God, all these letters? Or do you think, oh yeah. You know, is it right. what are your feelings? If you hear Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, do you feel a fondness at one and that the other is threatening? What do you think about these terms when you hear anti-racist? What does that bring up in you? And once you get to to, to kind of like eating mindfully, if you ever are working mm -hmm. on weight loss, they tell you to don't, don't eat in front of the TV and just kind of shovel stuff in. Pay attention to what you keep a food journal. Mm -hmm. That kind of mindfulness is what's called for. And once right. you've gotten that, what you can do about it is to one of my favorite things to do is to make a list of the students who you have the strongest feelings for and against. That is so, and you don't have to just use your present class. You can use, you know, your whole teaching career and pick five students that you really, oh my God, I just, I, every teacher can think of four or five students that they were just special. <laughs> and every student, and you can usually think of, you can remember five that you thought, oh my God. I mean, when I close my eyes and, and talk about this with you, their yeah. names that they're, they come up. Yeah. And those people, those kids are usually either kids who are like us and familiar to us in some way. They feel like an us. 
And the other kids are usually, they feel like a them. Right. And when we start to just look at literally in our own classes, how we are navigating relationships with all of our students, then we can begin to look at some things like race and gender identity and all of those other things and buying the books and getting colored uh, crayons that are different colors. Flesh tone is goes from peach to dark ebony. And then we can right. start doing those things. Mm -hmm. But first, just noticing how we, us and them, our kids. Yeah. That's interesting. The, uh, the idea of paying attention to your feelings and, and those internal reactions, almost those visceral primal reactions that we have in different situations into different people really gives us a clue to uncover where some of those biases might be lying dormant, or you may not even realize that they're there, but, but paying, paying attention to that. I think that mindfulness is, is great. You know, one of the things I think of Hedrick as, as we talk about bias and, uh, you know, I have this love-hate relationship with social media because <laughs> on the one hand, you know, we are told universally to to take an honest look at ourselves and be willing to admit. And I think in the general public, we say, listen, you're going to make mistakes. Things are going to happen. You might say something that's offensive. Just own it and apologize for it and move on from it. But the Twitter mob doesn't let you do this. And this is where I think some of the challenges. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but... What I see right now is a situation where I think more people like myself, more white people, more more just d diversity in society, I think more people would be willing to have this more honest conversation about bias and anti-racist work if it wasn't for the fact that the Twitter mob can take you down and make your life. And I'm not talking about the character, the, the sort of caricature of cancel culture. I don't want to go there. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is the idea that you can, your life can be made miserable with one slip of the tongue. The Twitter mob gets a hold of it and you make some open proclamation that you have implicit bias and that can be turned against you. So, you know, I, I think that those on Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms think they're helping, but it feels like they're making this societal transformation more difficult. Would you subscribe to that? Would you agree with that? And and if so, if not, then then set me straight. And if so, what do we do about that? How do we how do we have the these difficult conversations without because I think the fear of the of that sort of mob mentality is what's stopping so many from from having a more honest conversation about race. You know, um, I just think we should, and I don't, I don't, how, what do we do about this? This is what breaks my heart because for me, it's simple. Yeah. Um, let me talk about my classroom. So yeah. in my classroom, there were always eight things. We, you know, it was a computer lab. So no eating, no drinking, uh, you know, but the, the, and number eight was kindness and encouragement. And that was, and that came on every test. The first nine weeks, I would ask, what's the most important rule in our classroom? And sometimes they would say, no eating and drinking, blah, 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 blah. No, guys, it's kindness. And I drummed that in, that the one thing we can do, you know, middle school is hard for everybody. We are not going to make each other's lives miserable. So that whole clap back, snap back kind of a mentality, it was a no-go in my classroom because I know that those things, even things that are mean that are said, well, I was just joking. Yeah, but, you know, maybe that that wasn't a joke to her. Maybe that may, didn't feel good to him. So we had a, just a conversation kindness zone. And believe it or not, even with sixth and seventh graders, that does work. And I had a couple, I had a couple of students who said, Miss Nichols, your classroom is just different. Mm -hmm. And that's because I didn't, you know, just laugh when somebody made a, a nasty joke about somebody. If they were going to get in trouble, that would be the thing they would get in trouble for. 
You know, right. why did you say that? What if we said that about you? What do you think it what do you think she felt like when you said that? How do you think that she wanted to react? If I hadn't stopped it, what do you think would have happened? How what could have what was gained? Do you feel better about yourself by saying that mm -hmm. to her? Because finally, generally, when you snap back, clap back, it's because you don't feel good about yourself. You have to make someone else feel small. So we talked about those kinds of things. And we talked about what does your grandmama say? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And it's okay. You can have an opinion without sharing it. And mm -hmm. for some reason, we have gotten to a place. It started back with yellow journalism. And now that has spread to where we... Uh, believe it's cool and cute to, well, he's speaking the truth, keeping it real, 100%. Oh, well, that's why I like him. He says what we're all really thinking. And is that really necessary? Is it good? So I I would love to turn back to the place where if we don't say, if we can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. I um I don't know if you saw uh, the small bites about the teacher in California who did the Sokotoa thing. Yeah, I did. And And I said, you know, she made an honest mistake. When I looked at her, I saw a teacher who was, oh my God, that was so awful. But I can see she was really just trying to get drilled into her kids. She was going for gold and she didn't know. I fault the school systems that don't teach those kinds of things. Right. I, you know what I mean? And she's in a bubble probably where no one said, hey, guess what? That's not really cool. You know, why don't you try this instead? So I don't know. Tom, I wish I knew how to get mm -hmm. people to stop being mean to one another. I was a little kid who used to come home crying and my mom would go, what was, what's wrong? I said, well, they don't want to fight. They just want, they don't want to play. They just want to fuss and fight. And she'd say, and that's why you're crying. <laughs> so I've always been a little sensitive to that. I don't, Yeah. I don't understand it. I think yeah. life is hard enough. We have, God knows the last two years of life has been dramatic for us all. I don't Absolutely. know why we have to add meanness on top of that. So yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> I think I think you're onto something about, you know, this idea that it might be a lot of projection about insecurity, because I think sometimes what makes people and I'm not, I and I haven't ha experienced this personally, but I think what sometimes makes people feel better is when they can point to somebody else who they perceive to be worse. And so a lot of the meanness that happens on social media, I think, is rooted in insecurity and, and wondering about our position. And if we can highlight someone else who's much worse than us then it's a nice distraction from the truth about ourselves that we may have to confront. And here we are back again, arguing yeah. method. Exactly. <laughs> back, back to method. Very good point, right? We're back to method. We don't like the way they're doing it. But I, I do think that the, um, the way, and I, and I do call it the uh, sort of de-evolution of social media has really brought us to a place where, where rudeness and being brash. And I just talked about that in last week's episode about, you know, what, what happened to us? How did we become so rude and so brazen? And so, so in your face, what happened to civil discourse and, and real conversations about disagreements, et cetera? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is either. That's why I brought you, Hedrick. That's why you're here. I'm trying to find out from, from you how we deal with the Twitter mob. Well, <laughs> but you know, anyway. What I, what I, what I, I take the chance, I take the opportunity. I think if more of us would say, yeah is that the Sokotoa thing was me saying, hey, teachers, we're, having, we're struggling. This is the worst year of our career, of, of teaching ever. Why would we dump on somebody? And that, you know, I, and literally it took me about the Friday episode and the Monday episode and then a couple of tweets. I couldn't get it off. Like, really? We're complaining about how bad things are and we're dumping on somebody. Yes, she made, it was a bad mistake, but 
she made a mistake. Everybody makes one. Is right. that how you want people to react to you when you make a mistake? No. Mm -hmm. So step off. So I think if more of us would do that and yeah. stay, and more of us would, I don't engage on social media. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I don't get in the clapback culture. Even if something yeah. triggers me, I have a friend. I call my friend and say, God, can you believe what they said? Oh my God. That's what <laughs> friends are for. Exactly. And yeah, so I absolutely. think if we would just, you know, maybe start, I know I sound so cliche, but you know, start a, hey, for the whole month of December, let's all write nothing mean on, you know, let's make a TikTok challenge where we just do mm -hmm. that and, and, and use social media for that. Uh, if we would teach our kids, um, in yeah. school to use social media for something good. I, I, that's something we did as I did as a tech teacher. Those are some things that we could pile and, and then talk to our kids and then model that. If you say right. to your kid, be kind, then model that. Model and, yeah. You know, if we would just do that, I think we'd be okay. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I, and as cliche as it might sound, I think it is important that there's that mindfulness piece again, which is we have to be aware of what the net result in society is. And I, again, I talked about that last week, which is that you might even be right. You might be right. And that person might be wrong. But the end result of the interaction is going to be that we are less than as a society. And, and is that really what we want to devolve into our, our silos and our divisions and, and all of that and creating places where we can't have honest conversations without being attacked or without, without being sort of permanently stained. Uh, and, and I don't know, again, I don't know what the answer is, but I think you're onto something in terms of awareness. And I think the idea of being very intentional and as corny as it might sound to say, Hey, let's, let's talk about positive intentions or positivity. That is probably what's going to get us there. Can we talk for a moment about microaggressions? Because I think, you know, it's interesting, this term gets, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very sort of, um, uh, normalized now in terms of this idea of microaggressions. People are quite familiar with the term, but I think it's still a concept that eludes some. So I'm wondering if you could just help help us understand from your perspective, what is a microaggression? How might we recognize it? And then again, besides just, you know, don't do that. Are there things we can do, especially in the education context, maybe bring it to the classroom? What would a microaggression look like? What would it sound like? What do we do about it? How do we move ourselves away uh, from that? Okay, a microaggression is something that I think everyone's experienced. For example, if you have been, maybe you had a rich boyfriend or girlfriend and you were middle class or maybe not quite middle class and you go to, they invite you for a ski weekend. And of course your ski gear is, you know, not as swanky as someone else's ski gear. And they don't say, you don't belong here, you're poor, but they say, Oh, my goodness. Where did you find those boots? <laughs> it's that kind of a catty undertone, you know, un a can catty and subtle um, disparaging that people do. You know, you don't say something directly, uh, but you maybe remark, oh, interesting shoe choice, those kinds of things. That's a microaggression. It's just, okay. and what you get when you get gender identity and stuff, um, you'll get uh, gender and, and race, racial identity stuff, then you'll get, so I guess you have to wear that on you to, to a Muslim girl. I guess you have to wear that on your head, huh? Your religion is, it says you have to, you know, and right. I didn't say anything wrong, but the way I said it, it was so, you, 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 it wasn't, oh, so you have to wear a hijab. Cool. Tell me about that. It's, oh, I guess you have to wear that, huh? You know, that kind of a thing. Or, so I get, you're at Harvard as a Black woman. So I guess you're here on scholarship. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, right. <laughs> or uh, you know, those, those kinds of remarks that, um, or I had one once, 
so how long are you going to wear your hair like that? <laughs> you know, it was a, right. I got called into the office for wearing braids before that was in vogue and it mm-hmm. was professional. So those are the kinds of things that come up. They're the, those little teeny drops, drops, mm-hmm. drops mm-hmm. that are kind of like water torture. And they take a lot of energy to, to let roll off your shoulder. Mm-hmm. You're so articulate, right? That's another oh, one that God, we hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, <laughs> You're so articulate. Talking. You're yeah. so pretty for a black girl. <laughs> right. You you don't talk blank, like fill in the blank, right? Yes. There's all of those. Yeah. I, I think sometimes that we, you know, maybe they, we would call them before passive aggressive or we would, you know, I, sometimes yeah. I call them a complisult, which is like, it sounds like a compliment, but it's actually an insult. I like <laughs> you know? that. Complisult. Yeah. Complisult. Yeah. Uh, so, it's like, did I just get complimented or did you just, did, did you just uh, cut me up there? I don't know what's going on. It's mm-hmm. almost like you can't tell, but yeah, I think that, um, you know, we see these and, and we have to obviously be aware that is where some of our implicit bias will emerge is when we ourselves are, are, you know, using some of those, maybe inadvertently and mistakenly, uh, we say things and, and, uh, you know, I guess you hear on scholarship, you should say, yeah, because of my 4.0 or my 4.5 GPA and my seven AP classes that I took. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I got an academic scholarship. And you always have to kind of feel like you're defending your place somewhere. So right, I guess the right. thing that you can, we can do is assume that people belong. You know what I mean? You know, don't assume uh, there was there's a, a an Asian comedian who has a wonderful YouTube video called What Kind of Asian Are You? And right. she runs into a guy and the guy says, so where are you from? Um, um, America. No, no. But where? Where? Oh, um, Sac- California. Yeah. But, you know, where are you from? Yeah. Yeah. Called Sacramento. Yeah. <laughs> East Side. <laughs> He's just digging. You know, I had a Korean girlfriend once. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Great. Uh, so that kind of a thing. So just, right. just assuming that people belong would go a long way in reducing yeah. the numbers of microaggressions committed. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Complisults, right? You, 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 I guess we we just you know in one respect, I know this is going to sound oversimplifies, but we just maybe we just stop otherizing people, and and thinking about this idea of inclusion, right? Stop yeah. otherizing. Stop otherizing people. Assume that everybody's a part of your circle. We're all we're all leaning in. We're not we're not trying to create divisions and otherizing. So, um, Hedrick, as we finish up today, I want to bring up something uh, from a recent episode. Just just a recent episode from Small Bites podcast that I listened to. And again, listeners, I would really encourage you to subscribe to it. It's it's fantastic, and it's the reason Hedrick is here today. Uh, you talked about dismantling uh, a system, specifically dismantling systemic racism. Through the lens of, and I love this, through the lens of one student at a time or the one student standing in front of you. So I found that interesting because I think a lot of us, when we think of dismantling systemic racism, we, we see it as such a daunting task. And what can I as one individual teacher or what can I as one individual principal, what can I do to dismantle an entire system? But you advocate one student at a time, the student that's standing before you. So tell us a little bit more about that. How do we settle into that idea of, of why that is the most effective way to dismantle the system? Because um, all we have is spoons. I came in like a wrecking ball would be great, <laughs> but we don't have a wrecking ball. You know, a wrecking ball would be, let's say we looked at 
reparations for the indigenous communities and the descendants of enslaved Africans. First of all, the descendants of enslaved Africans began, when, as, as, as soon as child rape started to occur within those populations, uh, then you have a, you have this whole mulatto population and all that. So um, how are we going to go back and look at that and take that out? So what are we going to do? We're going to take a committee from Congress and we're going to talk about giving back land. Are you moving? You know what I mean? I know that I live on occupied lands, so they're going to uproot this. And, you know, like literally, if we go back and take the system, root out the parts that didn't work from the beginning, and that is a logistical impossibility. So what does dismantling the system look like that we can actually achieve? And first of all, we know that the wealthiest would never go for anything like that. So it's 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 not even a conversation. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some people who say, OK, cool, I'll move. Where do you need me to move to? And all right, this is yours. Cool. You got it back. Um, but, you know, imagine imagine that if everybody was resituated according to and 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 and, and, and things were divided equitably. I was like, oh, if I get a 40 acres and a mule, can I please have mine in midtown Manhattan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, so th- we have to look at what dismantling a system really means. And that's why right. I say with the one student, we start start small, start by looking at you and being mindful about who you other, who you, I like yours, who you otherize, mm-hmm. what kind of complicults might come out of your mouth <laughs> during the day. You know, start, start by being mindless and yeah. see who in your immediate circle that influences. Because when you do that, then you'll be able to branch out and you won't feel like, oh my God, no, I just can't talk about racism another day. It's just too heavy. I just, I just can't. And that's what happens. You know what I mean? Something like George Floyd happens and then everybody's up in arms and then it goes away. It's not in the it's not in the headlines anymore. It goes away and we can kind of begin to relax and go back to our lives. Mm -hmm. But when you see a little girl looking through the crayons and and drawing up, drawing a picture and she's trying to mix a peach and a brown to get her skin color because there's no color. And the peach one says skin color or that's what we think of. Then you can. Oh, that Crayola has a skin colors of the world box. Let me get a couple. You can make that small change or you can read books that have other kinds of characters. How often, as I know when I was a kid, all Dick and Jane were white and oh, yeah. all the characters I read about were they were white. All the protagonists were white. So you can read stories as a matter of course, not just during Black History Month or Hispanic History Month. Yay, it's September. Let's talk about Frida. You know, let's talk about different people who've achieved different things throughout the year. So that's what you can do. You can make it not just Black History Month, but have not only um, the, the who are the scientists who we know? Well, let's say Neil Armstrong. Everybody knows who Neil Armstrong is, but do we know Ellen Okoa? You know, she, she's on she's on freaking Twitter. You can you can get your class to follow her and see what she's doing now. She's like a real living hero. So yeah. by by doing those kind of things and thinking outside the box, hey, these are the history. This is the history I know. But whose stories are missing? Ask the question, or have you ask your question to your students? Who else was there? Hey, we're reading about Thomas Jefferson and his wife died. Who else was there? Well, Sally Hemings. Who was she? His sister-in-law's half-sister, I believe it was. She was <laughs> his, no, his wife's half-sister by yeah. the father's uh, enslaved mother, and, and, and he fathered many children with her. That's who else was there. She's a whole person, a whole story. So when you ask who else was there, the pilgrims, yay, happy Thanksgiving. Who else was there? Chief, oh, God. 
I can't say his name, Wakunsana. I can't, that's not right. I, it's not. I call him Chief Chief Powapon because that's usually what he's called, and I cannot say his name. I'm so sorry. I'm still practicing that. Unless I'm re- and when I'm reading it, I can say it, but I can never keep it. Yeah. Or his his daughter, Pocahontas, was a real person. You know, yeah. it was actually the daughter of the chief of the Powhatan Confederation. They were right. all there, but we only know the stories of the pilgrims, the British. And so finding out who else was there, those are things we can do on the campus and classroom level to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, just one one small change at a time. Keep keep influencing different books, as you say, different main characters. And important that those main characters be in positions of equal success to the other characters, showing intellect, showing character, all of those ideas uh, being being set in front of students. Hedrick, I, I, uh, I'm I happy to have contributed two new vocabulary terms to you because this has really been a fantastic conversation. And I feel like we're gonna have to do this again at some point, because I feel like we're just scratching the surface on so many different topics. But uh, as we finish up today, I've got two questions left for you. They're questions I ask uh, everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, and you can take the first one in any direction that you want to go in. Uh, but educationally speaking, the question is, what keeps you up at night? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to let you ask me the second one because I'm going to tell you what keeps me up at night very, very soon. Hold on. Watch me just a second. All right. You want the second question you know is the question is if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? So let's fold those last two questions in together and you work your magic. I would answer um, success is um, knowing that at the end of the day, I am kind and people know that I'm kind. And what keeps me that yeah, that at the end of the day, that I know that I'm not hurting people that I'm I'm in, in I'm in interaction with. That's successful for me. Yes, I want to have money and all of that. This baby safety, this is what this is what keeps me up at night. This is what keeps me up at night. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I want him to be happy and whole, and I would love to have him be able to live in a world where his children don't experience the things that he's experienced or that I experience. I would like us to between before I become a grandma and those kids get old enough to be in school, I would love for the world to be kinder and saner and move toward that one nation. Cause I feel like we're trying to, you know, it's like, why don't we just rip America and have you go on your side or go on mine? That's what it's feeling like. And I, that, that just breaks my heart. So that's what keeps me up at night. And, and, and knowing that what I'm doing it with small bites and with finding your blind spots, knowing that those things contribute to that, there's success right there. Yeah, that is success. And certainly Hedrick, you are, uh, having a big impact and and uh, having a major influence on on educators uh, throughout North America or probably around the world in in helping them bring things into perspective and the the thinking around all of the work that's necessary. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. Listeners, you definitely need to follow Hedrick on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Hedrick. Uh, Instagram, it's at Hedrick Nichols. You can find Hedrick on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. TikTok, Anchor FM, and YouTube. I'm going to have links for all of that in the show notes. So please uh, go there and, and follow Hedrick. Uh, I, I promise you it's it's definitely worth it. Uh, and her website as well, www.hedrick.com. Lots of great information there as well, including how you can connect with Hedrick should you want to pursue any equity coaching or consulting with Hedrick. Uh, Hedrick, again, as I said earlier, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation for me, and I'm sure listeners really appreciated your perspective, and I certainly appreciate you taking the time to be here. So thanks so much. Thank you as well, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for teaching me new words. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to outline six myths of summative assessment. 
Last Tuesday, November 23rd, I moderated our All Things Assessment Twitter chat, and my focus on that chat was on dispelling the myths of summative assessment. I thought this was an important enough topic to bring to Assessment Corner because the level of hyperbole that surrounds summative assessment, especially on social media, has got to stop. It's not helpful, it's often performative, and even sometimes cynically motivated to simply attract followers, likes, and retweets. So what I'm going to do here is outline the six myths in no particular order, the six myths, and basically synthesize what I would say in response or what I did say in response to someone if they were to make these assertions. Now, if you participated in the chat last week, which I know a few of you probably did, then sure, feel free to skip this part or listen to it again or whatever. But for those of you who did not participate in that chat, and this is kind of new, um, let's, let's jump right into it and talk about these six myths. Okay, the first one, myth number one. And again, these are in no particular order, so they're not ranked or anything like that. They're just in, in this particular order, okay? Myth number one, summative assessment has no place in our 21st century education system, okay? That's a complete myth. Look, the format and the substance of summative assessment can evolve, but the need to summarize the degree to which a student has met the learning goals or students have met the learning goals, independent of what those learning goals are, and report to others, for example, parents and other stakeholders, that will always be a necessary part of any education system in any century. So whether it's content, whether it's skills, or whether it's 21st century competencies, we will always be required. And listen, it's not just about required, okay? We should welcome the opportunity to report on student successes and student learning because it's important that parents and even the larger community and the public understand the impact that we're making on our students, the impact that we're having in our classrooms. I mean, maybe if we started looking at the reporting process as a collective opportunity to illustrate how effective we are at fulfilling our mission, then maybe we would have a different mindset about reporting altogether and report cards. It's, listen, it's easy to become both insular and hyperbolic, especially on social media, when it comes to summative assessment, but using assessment evidence for the summative purpose is part of a balanced assessment system and cynical caricatures of summative assessment actually detract from meaningful dialogue. Now, myth number two, summative assessments are really just formative assessments we choose to count toward grade determination. Summative assessments actually involve repacking standards for the purpose of reaching the full cognitive complexity of the learning. Summative assessment is not just the sum of the carefully selected parts. It's the whole in its totality where the underpinnings are contextualized, right? So it's not just about picking and choosing which formative moments you're going to count toward grade determination. There's actually purpose toward pulling it all together. So for example, having a collection of ingredients is not a meal. It's a meal when all of those ingredients are actually thoughtfully combined. The ingredients are necessary to isolate for instruction, if you will, to ensure potential success, so think about pulling apart for formative assessment, but pulling back together for summative assessment. Isolated skills are not the same thing as a synthesized demonstration of learning. Reaching the full cognitive complexity of the standards often involves the combination of skills in a more authentic application. So again, pull apart for teaching, pull back together for grading. Myth number three, summative assessment is a culminating test or a project at the end of the learning. Now, 
It can be that, for sure, but summative assessment is really a moment in time where a teacher examines the preponderance of evidence to determine the degree to which the students have met the learning goals or the standards. It need not be limited to an epic high-stakes event at the end. And again, certainly it can be a culminating test or a project because a culminating test or a project will provide more recent evidence and allow the teacher to have a clearer picture of where that student is in this moment. But since we know that some students need longer to learn, there needs to be a pathway to recovery in that these culminating events don't become disproportionately pressure-packed and actually turn into one-shot deals. So yes, it can be a culminating test or a project, but don't limit the idea. Sometimes it really is just examining the evidence in its totality. Okay, myth number four. Give students a grade and the learning stops. Now this causal relationship has never actually been established in the research. And while it is true that grades and scores can interfere with a student's willingness to keep learning, it is not automatic, it is not causal. The nuances of this actually matter. We have to ask ourselves, you know, the grades and the feedback, are they directed to the learning or are they directed to the learner? All the way back in 1996, Abraham Kluger and Angelo Denisi emphasized in their research on feedback, they emphasized the importance of student responses to feedback as kind of the litmus test for the idea of effective, right? So to be called effective, feedback must elicit a productive response from the recipient. There is no absolute or perfect strategy when it comes to feedback, but of course there are more favorable responses from students and more favorable strategies. But if, for example, you provide students with a formative score and you provide them with learning-focused feedback and they re-engage in the learning and try to advance their proficiency, then there's no harm and no foul in providing that formative score. If you produce the opposite reaction and the students either settle for the score or are disproportionately discouraged by a low score, then clearly there is an issue. But it's not a causal relationship, so it's something that we need to watch and make sure that we are focused on the right things. Again, context and nuance matter, especially when it comes to the quality of feedback. Remember, when it comes to feedback, the substance will matter more than the form. As many have pointed out, including Tom Gusky, had the Ruth Butler studies from the late 1980s, and these are the studies that are so widely cited to support the assertion that grades stop learning, had they actually examined the impact of grades that were criterion referenced and learning focused versus ego-based feedback toward the learner, as in you, you need to work a little harder, then the results of those studies might have been quite different. The impact in those studies was disproportionate to lower achieving students. So you can see that common sense would tell you that if you received a low score and then were told something sort of that was focused on you, like you need to work harder or this is a poor effort, that you would probably disengage from the learning and, and probably stop. But if, for example, and hypothetically, a low score was paired with you know, now let's work on type feedback or here's what's next for you type of feedback. And I'm not sure, this is purely conjecture on my part, but I'm not sure the results of the studies would be the same. That if it was criterion referenced and it was learning focused. And that is a nuance of those studies that often doesn't get talked about, especially on social media, where it's just easy to say, give a student a grade and the learning stops. So nuance, context, details are important because everything in assessment is really about those nuances and the context always matters. So we have to think about the specificity of all of that. Okay, myth number five, grades are arbitrary, meaningless, and subjective. 
I hear this one quite a bit and see this one on social media quite a bit. And it's frustrating to me because I sure hope grades are not arbitrary, meaningless, and subjective. Grades will be as meaningful or as meaningless as the adults make them, okay? Their existence is not the issue. Grades will be meaningful when they are representative of a gradation of quality derived from clear criteria that is articulated in advance of the learning. What some call subjective is really professional judgment. As many listeners heard Luis Cruz talk about just a number of episodes ago, he always talks about the fact that we are professional educators, not amateur educators. We are professional educators with an expertise and a skill set that most in the public don't have. Judging quality against the articulated learning goals or the criteria is our expertise. And pure objectivity in assessment is a myth. Okay, that's the real myth. Teachers decide, even in multiple choice questions, there is some quote-unquote subjectivity involved because teachers decide what to assess, what not to assess, the question stems or the prompts, the number of questions, the format, the length, etc. Like there's so many choices that teachers make. This idea of pure objectivity just doesn't exist. We use our expertise to decide what sampling of the learning provides the clearest picture. I want to give a shout out to Ken O'Connor too, who during the chat last week reminded all of us of what Grant Wiggins often said, and that is first, we shouldn't use the term subjective pejoratively, and two, the issue isn't subjective versus objective, the issue is our professional judgments. Are our professional judgments credible and defensible? So thanks again to Ken uh, for, for pointing that out and reminding us of what Grant Wiggins used to always say. And the final one, myth number six, students should determine their own grades. They know better than we do. Now, I understand where this assertion is coming from or this myth is coming from. Students should definitely be brought inside the process of grade determination, even asked to participate and understand how evidence is synthesized. But the teacher is the final arbiter of student learning. That is our expertise at work. Now, this myth, the idea that students know better than us and they should determine their grades, that might sound like empowerment, but you have to think about it. It actually marginalizes teacher expertise. Are we really saying that a student's first experience with anything is greater than a teacher's total experience? And again, bring the students inside the process. I get that. I'm all about that. Give them that full experience, but don't diminish your expertise while doing that. I just feel like sometimes, uh, you know, in the service of empowering students, teachers minimize and marginalize their own professional judgment and their own professional expertise. Like you'll never convince me that an 11-year-old knows it better or can do it better in comparison to all of your years of experience, your expertise, and your maturity, your perspective. Anyway, those are the six sort of myths with summative assessment, right? Myth number one was the idea that summative assessment has no place in the 21st century education system. Again, summative assessment is about reporting to others. It's about the purpose. Summative assessments are really just formative assessments we choose to count toward grade determination. No, we have to pull things back together to reach that cognitive complexity. Three, summative assessment is a culminating test or a project at the end of the learning. Yes, it can be that, but remember, summative assessment is often just a moment in time where a teacher looks at the preponderance of evidence and makes a decision about the degree to which the student has met the learning goal. Four, give students a grade and the learning stops. Yes, grades and scores can have the potential to interfere with student learning, but it's not causal, it's not automatic, so watch how the students respond, pointing out a formative score, providing a formative score, 
and having students re-engage with their work does not create a problem at all. It's not the existence of scores, it's the reaction the scores produce. Myth number five, grades are arbitrary, meaningless, and subjective. No chance. If they are that, it's because you let them become that. Grades should be based on clear criteria. And lastly, students should determine their own grades. Yes, bring them inside the process. But remember, we have an expertise and a skill set that is really important. Anyway, the reason that was the focus for the chat was because there continues to be this oversimplified narrative that vilifies summative assessment as all things evil when it comes to assessment. And I'm sorry, but that mindset, that assertion, that narrative is not credible. Not to mention, it's naive and really does reveal a lack of understanding of what a balanced assessment system is all about. A few weeks ago, I happened to come across a Twitter thread about summative assessment, and one person tweeted, uh, I'll quote the tweet here, legit question, what is even summative assessment? Now, if they had left it at that, then maybe it was actually a legit question, but the person went on to assert several positions about assessment, so it clearly wasn't a question. And I'm sorry, it's actually not a legit question in 2021. I know we, we might think that you know pithy little quotes like that make us sound really smart, but the truth is they do the opposite. They reveal a level of naivety and a level of ignorance toward the research. And again, to be clear, I have all kinds of time for actual questions, okay? We can't fault people for knowing or not knowing, so please don't get the wrong idea here. We need to be patient with people as they learn and grow into their assessment practices. I've got all kinds of time for people who ask me the same question 20 times in a row. No problem there. You know, many people did that for me back in the day, were very patient with me as I was learning, and we need to do that for everyone else. But when you immediately answer your own question with a number of different statements, then it's clear that that was not a real question. Anyway, the overall point here is that we need to be grounded and we need to have honest and reasoned conversations about summative assessment that are anchored in the research, not some performative label that we'll defend at all costs through clever turns of phrases and quibbles over semantics. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Yes, the podcast is now on TikTok, so you can check it out. Also, uh, email the pod if you have suggestions for guests or any questions for Assessment Corner. That, of course, is tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be retired professor Dr. George Sugai. George was, along with Rob Horner, one of the founders of of the Center for Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports at the University of Oregon back in the early 1990s. He is, was, a prolific researcher and a recognized global authority on behavioral interventions and supports. My connection to George and the top-tier space he holds in the trajectory of my career goes back to the summer of 2000, and I'm going to talk about that next week. I am seriously excited to reconnect with George after so many years. It'll be a two-part interview, by the way, so part one will be next week, and part two will be on December 13th, and that will take us into the break. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you are so inclined, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I really do appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone.